This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio. Oh, and welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Welcome to show 14 of Jordan Space, where this week, Danny, Paul and I are going to be exploring the importance of written expression and its various forms in relation to suicide, mental health, loss, and a number of other life experiences. We're also going to be joined by our guest, the author Helen Garlick, who in 1981 lost her brother David to suicide and some 40 years later published her family's experience in the hugely powerful book, No Place to Lie. Danny, Paul, welcome. And uh, Paul, there are obviously lots of different forms of writing, and we've encountered many of them since we founded The Jordan Legacy. What is it about the written word that seems to resonate with people so deeply? Well, I think um, obviously these days there's also you know, people have access to talks online and videos and all sorts of things. But I think there's something about the situation that people experience, especially if it's loss and and specifically loss to suicide, you know, where people are going looking for answers to why questions and they're wanting to, you know, they're they're quite prepared to sort of devour material. There's the reading aspect of it in terms of going to look for answers. And there's books like Professor Rory O'Connor's book, um, you know, where it's darkest, why people die by suicide and what we can do to prevent it. I mean, that's a book that a lot of people have read and said that uh, they've learned an awful lot in there. Um, but then there's also something special about reading people's lived experiences, their own personal experiences. Um, and, and people are going looking for solace as well. They're looking for comfort. They're looking for therapy in all sorts of forms. And that can be, it can be reading a book. It can be reading an article. Uh, it can be listening to lyrics in a, in a song or the music, obviously, from a song and poetry. So, I mean, it's it's one of those things where you've got the aspect of it, which is which is reading what other people are writing. And then, of course, some people get a lot of benefit from writing, as you did, writing down your own experiences. Danny, on show seven, we invited author Sue Henderson to appear on Jordan Space. Sue had lost her husband to suicide when their children were extremely young. And it actually took her some 17 years to decide the time was right to publish her book, Things John Didn't Know About, which she'd actually started to write shortly after John's death. As a mother yourself, what what was important about Sue's story, do you feel? 
Yeah, well, I think sort of in general, and, and like Paul was just saying, um, there's certainly for many people, including myself, a, a level of comfort that comes from hearing another person's story and their lived experience, which resonates with something you yourself might have gone through. Um, in terms of Sue, although mine and her circumstances were different in a lot of ways, um, we were both mothers, two young children, and we both lost someone very close to suicide. Um, and I think there's this sort of balance you have to find when you're a mother, especially of young children, where you have to, you know, where you have to deal with the aftermath of a traumatic event, where you have to deal with your grief, but you've also still got to deal with all the practicalities that come with being a mum. And when you have children, life can't just stop as much as you might want it to sometimes. And um, I, I remember asking Sue during that interview on Jordan's Space if she'd found it easier to deal with her grief because she had the children to look after and she said that in many ways it did because it forced her to carry on and it gave her a purpose and I think that really resonated with me. I also think it's really significant uh, as you've mentioned that um, Sue wrote that book you know 17 years later and she talked about how she started writing it soon after uh, and then sort of parked it and came back to it and that, that happens a lot I know a lot of people have done that they've started writing a book or a memoir or, or a, you know, an extended piece, they've come back to it. And that changes the nature of the piece because, as we know, people reflect and change and evolve over time, like Sangeeta and other guests that we've had on the show. Thank you, Paul, and uh, thank you, Danny. Uh, we're going to take a break now for some more music, and when we return, we're going to be speaking to our guest, author, Helen Garlic. This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back. On St David's Day, March the 1st, 1981, Author Helen Garlick was more than 4,000 miles away from home in St. Louis, Missouri, when she received a call from her father. In the moments that followed, he explained that Helen's brother, David, had died. At the time, Helen's father described David's death as a terrible accident. Some 40 years later, Helen published a book, No Place to Lie, which takes the reader on an extraordinary journey through suicide trauma and shame, to shine a light on what really happened to David and the startling secret her mother took to the grave. We'd like to welcome to Jordan's Space our good friend, Helen Garlick. Helen, thanks very much for joining us today. It's uh, great to have you on the show. It's a delight to be here, Steve, and uh, yeah, lovely to lovely to be with, with all, of, all of you listeners. Um, so, Helen, we've got a, a lot to talk about uh, today. We've, we've mentioned the, the book, of course, um, no place to lie um but of course um your own experience is not just as an author you you've many years working in family law and the experiences of dealing with all kinds of family traumas and situations there you're also heavily involved in the world of suicide prevention as an ambassador for the zero suicide alliance so i feel there's kind of quite a lot to get into um, a short period of uh, of time today so let's maybe start um with the book um i say no no place to lie we uh, are hoping people will go out and buy the book as a result of listening today so without giving kind of too much away but it'd be really interesting maybe to share with our listeners the the premise of the book and of course it does does start very very sadly with that call pretty early on in the book that you received from your father well, it's yeah, it's nearly 42 years ago that that call happened um, and I was in St. Louis and uh, I really had no idea. I'd been in America for for two months, um, you know, doing my thing. I was 22, doing a bit of travel before I took up the cudgels of being a family lawyer um, and 
receiving that call just changed my life completely. It'll be familiar to anybody who's who's familiar with or who's had who's been touched by the deathly touch of suicide that it, it, it become you know you, your life becomes completely different. And at the time, it was you know I I felt like I was in some kind of a black void or you know that there was a hole inside me, um, and it took a very long time to start seeing beyond beyond that. But I think. I mean, the reason I wrote the book was I wanted to piece together what had actually happened um, and unveil some of the secrets, you know, that I mean, I don't know if anybody else has this decided, but this feeling as well. But when I was a child growing up, I always felt there were things that people weren't telling me, you know, the adults were kind of going around and and then I would come into a room and they'd be chatting and laughing and then suddenly everything would stop as soon as I came in. So as a little girl I felt that I was probably adopted and that was the that was the reason that was the secret that my 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 parents had Uh, and I used to search through documents and find out what it was you know I was sure I'd get an adoption certificate but it it wasn't there you know and if anybody knows my parents my dad was a was a well-known Yorkshire solicitor um, Jeffrey Garlick he was president of the Yorkshire Union of Law Societies for I think 47 years and my parents were well known, you know, and I looked just like them, but I thought I was adopted. There was something else going on, but I didn't find that out for, until actually after my mother died when she left a note um, to explain um, how she identified. And, I, and then suddenly, again, my life was a, a, another huge change. You kind of, because when things happen, it doesn't, happen, it doesn't just affect the future, does it? It affects the past for us. It, it, we, we start to see things in different lights and you think, okay, so that person actually wasn't telling me that at that time. And how does that all fit together? Coming back to that early time, I, I know, you know, we've talked about David's suicide, but that wasn't as clear cut really, was it, in, in, in the early days that, that it was a suicide? No, it wasn't. I mean, David hadn't left a note. Um, in fact, we found later on he had, he had a diary he'd torn six weeks of his diary out, but he hadn't left a note. He didn't tell anybody he was going to do it. He was, he was being a caretaker in a remote Nottinghamshire uh, manor house. And, you know, he was on his own. He, 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 he was looking after my dog, Cleo, a Gordon setter, but he'd taken her back to the village. So he's very much on his own. Um, and it, yeah, it wasn't clear um, that, I mean, even now there's, you know, there's a possibility that somebody broke in and, and, uh, you know did the deed that ended his life but it's far more likely that he did and um i found out subsequently that he and his best friend who i've called in the book nick kane to you know protect his privacy um had talked about suicide and you know this is not uncommon is it 20 21 year old lads both had difficult relationships with their fathers um they uh they talked about it and you know i I've learned subsequently that the brain doesn't fully mature until we're in our mid twenties. So in that, when, when we're sort of 20, 21, 20, you know, uh, until then, we think we're sort of immortal. I mean, it, it seems to me like people can make that decision about ending their life, almost thinking, well, maybe then it will restart the next day or something. It's, it, you don't realize the, 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 the mortality of it, but yeah, it, I, I went on a journey. I, did, I contacted the. Uh, there was a 
there was a young barrister who helped my dad at the time appeal against the original inquest verdict to suicide. And I got back in touch with him. He's now a very eminent KC, King's Counsel. Um, and he told me about different things that had happened, but including the fact that my was a difficult relationship between my father and the coroner. And so that uh, my father even felt that the coroner had, had had this verdict of suicide as some kind of horrendous, um, you know, revenge, act of revenge against my father who'd, who'd acted in other cases with him. So, you know, there were lots of things to piece together. Um, and I think in that piecing together, I, I aim to be very vulnerable. You know, I think vulnerability in a way is our superpower. So I've told people in the book, it's a very revelatory book, um, but I've had loads of people contact me to say that as a result of reading the book, it's helped them with their families and see things in different light. So it's almost as if when we open up our heart about our own story and claim that story, then it helps others to, to see that. Their, their lives maybe in a in a in a different light or perhaps even a truer light. I, I would certainly agree with that from my my own experience, not having authored a book, but through the writings online that, that I've shared and, and the feedback that I get. Just one interesting point, as you as you say, even today, you know, that there's some question around whether David's death was was suicide or or not. But I know your your father was was really very adamant that it was a, a break-in and, and that someone else had, had, had caused David's death um but I'm also wondering we're, we're going back to the 1980s now we're going back to 1981 we you know we mm -hmm. talked today about the taboo surrounding suicide let's go back 40 years and think about the whole stigma and taboo around mental health um, and suicide, particularly back then, you know, how much of that do you think played a part in in your father being absolutely adamant that it wasn't suicide? I think it, it was huge. I mean, you know, in in my family, uh, although looking back, there were lots of there was lots of trauma on both sides of the family, and I, I'm very interested nowadays in the whole concept of inherited trauma, how we kind of inherit trauma not only from our parents, but our grandparents and even the culture that we're brought up in. Um, but there was a huge amount of shame about suicide. I mean, you know, never mind, never mind depression. We weren't allowed to say that depression existed. My father said depression did not exist. Um, and people just needed to, you know, get on with it. Uh, so suicide was immense. Um, and he, he felt that that stigma, that shame, terribly so much so that he he clung on to the idea that it was a terrible accident but there was another reason too I mean my parents were both churchgoers um, that was a very important part of their lives and at the time and indeed right up to 2017 the Church of England's guidelines were that victims of suicide could not be buried in the churchyard now each vicar had their own discretion as to whether or not they would be buried in the churchyard but there was that risk and for my father to have a child his son not buried in the churchyard i'm sure was a massive motivating factor and that's one of the another reason why i chose the title no place to lie because it felt you know if, if you go back to to old english churchyards and you look um just often to the north of the churchyard there there are unmarked graves and those were unbaptized babies victims of suicide other people who the church deemed could not be 
buried in sacred ground. It always strikes me as just so sad that you'd be buried in the north side, you know, the coldest side, as if society was was just excluding you even more. I just wondered, Helen, how how you sort of feel like um, David's suicide impacted on on you in terms of you not being able to talk about it with your parents, with your father, not believing it was suicide, and obviously how that must have made it harder for you to to grieve about when you weren't openly able to talk about it. Yeah, I I think I I became sort of almost like two people. I was one person with my parents, and then I was somebody else. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I'd moved. To, I moved to London later on in June of um, 1981, and then, and then really threw myself into creating a life in London. Um, I, you know, I was working in the city of London. It, this was a time of, you know, Prince Charles and Diana getting married. Uh, it was a sort of. There was lots of wonderful things happening. I ended up with a, an amazing group of people that I that I met, and I lived this life which was really divorced from from David's suicide. So if I, I I had to just put it all on one side, but then coming back to the family um, where the grief was so palpable and so painful, um, and I you know it was it was. It was very hard not talking about it, and I, you know, I found myself doing silly things, Danielle. Like I don't, but I, like the first Christmas after David died, I bought two presents for everybody in the family, and I didn't even notice that I was buying two presents. I just did it, and then I, so in some way, I think I was trying to make it better for everybody else. I took on that role of trying to make it better for everybody, and it turned out to be very good experience for being a mediator the grief in my for my parents was so immense that I was really frightened to actually tackle it because it became it became more and more like a wall like a a dike that was built up around this this huge reservoir of their of their grief and then so we didn't talk very much about it hardly at all my parents invented a kind of slightly glossy glossier version of David's childhood um, and it just felt very unreal to me so I, I, I avoided them actually I, I mean I came home I did I get, did come home I did come home regularly I did see them I did speak to them I did all the things that our daughters should but it created a massive gulf in in our relationship and um, only healed actually to some extent when when I had children and I was very very keen to be a mother um, and so my first daughter, Unity, who I called Unity, was born um, when I was 32. So it was some time later. But they, they were wonderful grandparents and they adored being grandparents. So that that helped. Helen, you talked about um, how this wasn't talked about until after your mum died. And we often hear that. I mean, I've known lots of people, including someone in my own family who uh, experienced lost to suicide and it wasn't uh, revealed until many years later and also I read lots of memoirs of people who say they didn't talk about these things until after their parents died including people finding out they're adopted sometimes mm. uh, or finding out the true story about it all after after their parents died so I'm really interested in the letter you talked about you found out in that letter from your mum and and how much truth came out and how much do you feel still maybe isn't spoken? Ooh, well, yeah, I mean, the, the letter from my mum was about something completely different and it was about her personally. Um, and right. 
it was such a shock. I mean, my mum was was a was a bit of a closed book. You know, she was a kind of she was very very beautiful, um, uh, you know, especially when she was young. And she she kind of she was the sort of person who'd come into a room and everybody would kind of look at her. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, um, and then the, the, the what she revealed to us meant that she'd been living a lie really all her life and not only I didn't know this but nor did her sister her younger sister my auntie Judy so um, that was huge and it involved a family friend who I'd always thought of as a family friend and turned out to be her lover in the the past when she was in her 20s so that you know that really shook me up because okay so I'm, I did develop my career, um, Steve, as you said, as a, as a family mediator, and I've taught lawyers to be mediators, and I've taught them about the importance of talking and being sensitive and so on. And then I was so blindsided mm. by what my mother revealed that it, I was reeling, absolutely reeling um, in the days after her, her death. But then it also, you know, when you kind of learn something and then suddenly it all clicks into place and you mm. think, ah! that's why this makes sense now it all makes sense now it all makes sense now and so going back to that thing where you know I came into a room and people would stop talking I you know no I wasn't adopted but there was something else that you know was was being was was being covered up in the family so it's so much better to talk in fact I've even got a YouTube channel called it's better to talk Mm. hello it's better to talk so uh I think just getting that message out is so important um you know, especially about suicide. And also you, you, I'm interested in the work that you do around family relationships, because we often hear stories about um, loss being so critical in people's mental health, um, loss, experiences of loss, you know, relationship loss, financial yes. loss, job loss, being a, a risk factor of suicide. And to what extent do, does your work involve addressing that specific issue of loss and, and drawing from your own experience? I suppose, well, I've, I've retired as a family lawyer now, but it, I mean, I, but the whole issue of loss, I think the whole concept of loss is, is, is so vital. Um, and, and isolation. I think, you know, the, 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 my work in involving people separating, getting divorced, um, I would always try and help them focus on what's really important, which is the children. Uh, rather than the money you know money comes money goes but it's about family relationships and and keeping up those family relationships and weaving you know those 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 cords of connection stronger um i would often worry about my husband clients my male clients um because i think there's there's such a risk factor for them in particular about Mm -hmm following divorce when they can get incredibly isolated and if they're in an environment where they can't talk about things you know their partner their wife was often the only person that they did talk to and open up to so it becomes incredibly isolating for them so I would be you know always keen to talk to them about you know who was supporting them and normalizing professional support you know saying I've I've been in therapy at different times in my life it's vital and there are times when professional support really needs to kick in isolation is 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 a is the biggest killer on in the planet 
Protecting ourselves from trauma and loss is, is really important, isn't it, in, in terms of, of it not continuing and being passed on to future generations. What, what, what are your thoughts around that? Oh, huge topic. Thank you so much for raising it. I mean, I, I think that, you know, what the trauma that's happened to us um, is huge. It's not our fault, but it is our responsibility very much so to to heal ourselves so that we're not cascading that down, down down the generations. I mean, Oprah Winfrey does some brilliant work about that, where she's working with deeply traumatized girls very often. And she says that the conversation needs to change from what's wrong with you, which is a, you know, a question that often comes up to what happened to you, which is a kinder question. And you know, and uncovering that, that is, is incredibly important. So, and, you know, depending on the level of trauma, the healing actually can just sometimes only needs to take place in, in little tiny doses rather than little micro doses, rather than 45 minutes worth of a therapeutic session. That might not be, that might be too much, but little bits here and there in a safe space are really important. I'm, I'm now giving myself permission to really look after myself. I've moved to a place by the sea, which has always been my dream. Um, and that was all came out of a friend talking to me. And she said that whenever she makes a decision, she makes a decision on, on the basis of whether or not it makes her happy. And I was gobsmacked by that. I mean, I have never had that criterion in my <laughs> life about, you know, it does a decision make me happy or not? It's, it's what should I do? That was my, mm. my, my question to always to myself. What's the, what's the right thing to do? What should I do? So now I'm saying, well, what's going to make me happy? Um, because that's our primary responsibility is to take care of ourselves. Um, we're going to go to a, to a break uh, now, but um, Helen, the music we've been playing through today's show, chosen by, by yourself. We open up with Born to be Wild, of course, to, to kickstart uh, the show and then lean on me from Bill Withers. But we, we're going to play a track now by an artist that, you know, I've really loved, Eva, Eva Cassidy, Fields of Gold. Um, just explain a little bit what, why this particular song choice. Uh, well, I've known Sting for a long time, then who was the original writer of this, this piece, but um, Eva Cassidy's song is... Actually, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if I'm listening to it, I don't know if I can even talk afterwards. I mean, David had corn gold hair my mother had corn gold hair um i imagine i know one day we will be reconnected i mean david's visited me from time to time um and this and the song fields of gold as sung so beautifully by eva cassidy just gives me that sense of unconditional love a beautiful peaceful space and being reunited with the ones you so love. This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we, we ended, I think, on a really important point just before the break there, Helen, talking about, you know, whatever we do in life in terms of looking after ourselves, you know, are we doing it to make ourselves happy? And, 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 and that's very much a principle you're living by. And I thought that was a really powerful learning experience. Um, I want to talk uh, just just a little bit here about um, your career, though, in, in, in family law. And we touched on it a little bit before in, in, around mediation. And um, uh, um, um, what kind of lessons have maybe come out in terms of suicide generally? And one question I've got is kind of, was, was it always going to be that you moved into family law because of your father's background? Or how much did the experience that you went through lead you into family law? 
Well, I think my father, who was also a lawyer, wanted me to, to become a solicitor like him and to take over the, the family practice in Doncaster and Sheffield. But I wanted to be in London. Um, I wanted to be a partner in a London firm. I, had, I was very driven in my 20s. I mean, so I wanted to be a partner and I ended up making being a partner at age 27, uh, which is kind of like ridiculous now looking back on it. I started off actually in a more of a commercial sector, but then I wanted, I knew I wanted to help people. Um, so I decided that I'd go into family law and I contacted various different family lawyers. And I was very lucky to meet all sorts of different people, including an extraordinary woman called Blanche Lucas, who was a white Russian and used to smoke Sobrani cigarettes, those sort of, you know, those extraordinary ones in a, you know, cigarette holder. And so, and so and she sort of smoked, she was smoking saying, darling, those of us who come into family law must always remember that we do so because of our own problems. Now, what are yours? I, I do have to say, Helen, I've, I've got a kind of Joanna Lumley image in my mind at this moment. I don't know how close that is. <laughs> very similar, very similar. She was, she was, she'd been married five times, I think, to my knowledge. I think, yeah, I mean, people people come into family law for all sorts of different reasons. It, it's, a, it's actually a very it's a stressful profession to be in. Um, people would ask me from time to time, you know, did I find it stressful? And I go, no, 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 I'm, I'm absolutely fine. So, you know, but over the years, I, I learned that I needed to, again, take care of myself. Um, lawyers are not, haven't been in the past very good about um, having their own support or supervision. If, you know, if you're a therapist, you'll get regular supervision. You'll be able to dump a lot of the stuff that's being dumped on you so that we are healed enough, you know, ourselves to be able to help our clients. You, you can't run on empty. But, I, you know, family law has evolved over the years. Um, still, you know, it's only been very recently, actually, that the, 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 law, the basis of divorce has changed. So it's a completely no fault one. You know, the, the, there was a change in 1973, which allowed people to divorce after five years. And that was called the Casanova's Charter at the time. And you think, God, yeah, we've moved on such a lot. But we were talking so, about the importance of language earlier on, weren't we? And and, and, and there's a, a piece that needs to be rewritten, probably. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that, you know, the, the processes themselves weren't necessarily helpful, but it's an incredibly painful process to go through through divorce. Um, children often get, you know, missed out. It, it, people say, by and large, kids miss out on about two years worth of parenting when they're when their parents get divorced and you know I've been through a divorce myself after 24 years of marriage and I can relate to that too you, it's such, such a horrendous experience it's very hard to hold it all together and, and just coming back to mediation you know I know a number of mediation lawyers um you know to a large extent you 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 are sitting in a counseling situation aren't you and as you say therapists and counselors will receive um support um in a way that typically lawyers won't and they're taking on a, a huge huge amount yes it's i mean i think yeah, there's a there's a difference with mediation in that you tend not to ask the question how do you feel about that mm -hmm. so you, you just so you try and keep people in their left brain about how do you view that or how do you you know how does that sound to you or you know whatever that might, might work Helen, obviously you talked about your career there in, in family law, but of course, as time moved on, you started to venture into the world of, of suicide prevention and, and became an ambassador with the Zero Suicide Alliance. So curious as to uh, how that step uh, happened. Um, well, I think it was when I um, 
yeah, when the book was coming out and I was, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to, I want to, I want to be of use. I want to help. Um, and I think the Zero Suicide Alliance are an extraordinary organization. You know, they've trained now 2.3 million people um, with their free training. And if people haven't done it and are listening to this, please hop over to Zero Suicide Alliance and do the training. It will take you 20 minutes and it will give you the skills that you need those those important skills about talking to somebody that you you're worried about you know might be thinking about suicide and they talk a lot about about actually naming you know asking the question because i think it's counterintuitive isn't it we've all perhaps been brought up with the idea certainly i was it's better not to talk about it don't you know don't mention the word suicide because that'll put it into somebody's mind well we know now that it that it it's in their mind anyway it's in it's in all of our minds as you said it's free training um there's no reason why we shouldn't be be doing it yeah yeah and, and i was i actually i just got because i moved to devon and i got a new hairdresser okay this, this is obviously very frivolous stuff that i'm mentioning to you but she when i got there she she'd done the, the suicide um as i say training and she put it up on the wall and i thought again that you know how how helpful is that to to, to make to normalizing it to making sure that we can talk about it that we can ask somebody we're not too scared that we you know can be a bit braver and be with other people on the journey because this is you know connection is the antidote to isolation and we do we do have that common connection um in talking about suicide and obviously we're running events about talking about suicide and we're talking about the language and so on um and i noticed i was looking at your website um, earlier and there's references on there to creating safe places where people can be vulnerable which is very much in line with what we uh, you know the advice that we give you also do talk about courage and bravery and, and we've had some interesting discussions about that over time I, I, to what extent do people have to be courageous and brave to talk or to what extent is it actually our responsibility to create those safe, sp safe spaces and enable people to be ordinarily vulnerable, you know, normalizing vulnerability rather than having to summon up huge, um, you know, extra extraordinary amounts of courage or something. What what what's your view on that, and how do you how do you articulate that? That's that's a really interesting question. I th I think I think you know people will often say something like, oh, you know, they encourage people to reach out, but we kind of know that people who are in a dark place actually find it really hard to reach out. We need to reach in to them and mm -hmm. I, I mean I'm blown away by some of the work that people are doing about creating safe spaces that 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 people you know you, you just again you, you just pop in and you know you have a coffee you, you pick up the paper and then you can talk about something you know in a kind of sideways way that makes sense that you, you're not it isn't full-on right are you thinking about suicide you know but you, you're just creating friendships and connections and and spaces for people to talk now I, I i mean i feel that i actually should be doing more of that myself um i'm not quite sure how that's going to lead me you know where that's going to lead me to but i and um, there's a space in in Ilfracombe called the straw patch project um which i've been involved in a little bit and that does wonderful work in um in connecting people with nature yeah i think that the, the it's a, it's a sort of patchwork, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's no one answer, but no. creating safe spaces, safe, warm spaces um, is 
warm in, in every way, warm in, you know, physically, but um, warm emotionally. And there's, there's those dedicated safe spaces, but also the safe supportive environments in, in workplaces and in everyday community yeah. life. And, and presumably, again, practicing as a lawyer, there's moments where in your ordinary everyday work, you need to create a safe environment for somebody to, to open up. Yes, and I, and I hope that's happening more. Um, I mean, I have to say that I, you know, the downside for family lawyers is an awful lot of drinking alcohol that goes on, mm. and that's a way of of self medicating for, what, for what's going on. I mean, I, I yeah, healthy talking, nurturing spaces, and um, I, I mean, you know, every time, um, actually, every time a man opens up and is just um, gentle or soft or kind and I, I do a little happy dance. It makes me feel it makes me feel so happy. And you know, I'm very much I don't know how what your listeners might think of this, but I I'm very much on Team Harry side for writing his book Spare, um, just by opening up and his and his, and sharing his vulnerability. It's creating a conversation, and that make conversation may go in all sorts of different ways. But uh, I I I. Just incredibly grateful every time a man opens up and is vulnerable, and and does it in a you know in a in a way that that honours himself as well, that looks after himself. Absolutely. Well, Helen, as always, um, <clears throat> time's flown by. Um, it, it's it's been a fascinating conversation. We always like to end on a on a message of hope, and I think there has been you know amongst the difficult conversation today some real messages of hope. Mm. And I think you know one that I've really really taken away here is about you know, doing what makes us happy. Um, and, and I think if we can kind of take one thing away today and say, yeah, am I, am I doing what's making me happy? Maybe a few people listening today will reflect on that. And, and in some cases, maybe say, yeah, maybe I'm not, maybe I need to look at this. So I think that's been a really one of many powerful messages. Um, before we say farewell uh, to you, and I do really want to thank you for coming on Jordan space today um like you introduced uh, one one track here and and that that is Jimmy Ruffin's song what becomes of the the broken hearted and uh what's the story behind this particular song choice well the story behind this is that I um I'm in contact with our old next door neighbor and he and David used to do you know to go to motocross things motorbikes were a huge part of their life um so I got in touch with him and he said he said I said I was you know coming on this show and thank you so much for having me um, but he he said whenever he hears this Jimmy Ruffin song it always reminds him of David again I could hardly speak when he reads it when he when I read this text from him because it is you know what does become of us the, the broken heart of those of us who've been touched by suicide what do we make of our lives can we find a space within ourselves as you do to um to heal and to 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 look at you know to to mend our broken heart and to to expand so that we we take on joyous opportunities in life and we build our lives and build our families and build you know strong relationships with the people that we love so thank yeah, you rob the, for the, this suggestion perfect choice helen i think to say thank you so much for for joining us today it's been a, a, a real pleasure thank and look you. forward to seeing you soon Let's listen to uh, Jimmy Ruffin and what becomes of the broken hearted. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio.
Welcome back, everyone. Well, Danny and Paul, uh, another fascinating conversation. Um, Helen's story. Uh, I'm hoping that readers are really going to want to go and, and read her book. Danny, what, what were some of the key things you took away from our conversation with Helen today? Yeah, I think her story just really shows the importance of talking and having open conversations. Obviously, it really affected her, you know, with, with her dad's view on, you know, that her brother David didn't take his own life and that obviously had effects on her. And I think just how she's managed to overcome all that and all the trauma in her life. And she's now in a much better place and she's she, she's been able to find happiness and actually not only find it, but also choose it for herself, which, you know, she was also explaining the importance of actually choosing happiness rather than just hoping it comes along. Yeah, I think that was a really important point, wasn't it? Giving herself permission to uh, to be happy. Paul, what, you know, what were some of the key takeaways for yourself? Oh, it was lovely listening to Helen because she had so much uh, insight and, and so many great experiences to draw on. Um, on the, on the one side, I was thinking, you know, she was talking about intergenerational trauma and, and these things which live with people for many years and how we need to address that. But on the hopeful side, she was also talking about, effectively talking about generational change and thinking back to her father and, and, and not wanting to accept that it was suicide and, and you know, all the issues around, um, you know, the burial in the church and so, you know, it was an age where there was the shame and, uh, and the stigma and so on. But just look at Helen herself talking about these issues now. And that's that's part of the message of hope. And in the legal profession, again, changes uh, you know, are taking place. So that's what we need to remind ourselves. Some of this change takes a long time, but change does happen. Helen mentioned about the um, work she does with the Zero Suicide Alliance and uh, the, the training, the free training they provide, which is evidence-based, experience-informed, NHS-endorsed training, very valuable. So, yes, I would encourage, very much encourage people to go to the zerosuicidealliance.com website and take that training. No, thank you uh, for, for that, Paul. Um, and uh, just in terms of resources um, as well, uh, during the show today, we did make reference to um, alcohol. Um, and uh, if, if anyone was was impacted by that conversation today on the jordanlegacy.com website in our help and resources section, we do have a specific section uh, around alcohol uh, misuse um, and some guidelines and, and help resources there. Um, if that would be helpful to anyone listening today. So thank you, Danny and Paul, and uh, thank you for tuning in and listening to this edition of Jordan Space. I hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful. And if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, please do get in touch either via our website at thejordanlegacy.com or by emailing hello at thejordanlegacy.com. You can also engage with us on social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on both sites via the username at Jordan Legacy UK. That's it for today's show. You can listen to recordings of previous shows on our website by choosing the menu Jordan Space at the top of the website. For now, from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you a safe, healthy and above all hopeful rest of your week. And we're going to leave you with one final track chosen by Helen which is Father and Son by Cat Stevens. This, this is, is Yawa Radio. A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team 
at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. UK. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio Podcast. Copyright applies.